I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Welcome back for another week, folks. Excited that you're joining us here in uh, the upper Midwest, the great state of South Dakota, where under God, the people rule. Joined today by Joe Rutten, who is no stranger to uh, many of the Catholics and, uh, and our fellow citizens in this state. Joe, welcome to the program. Thanks. Uh, great to be here, Chris. And uh, you've been on the show before. I know you've got your own programming on on relevant uh, relevant radio, uh, real uh, presence, real presence radio. Shame on me. They're gonna. <laughs> I was so I'm in the Minnesota Guard. So whenever I, I actually just had guard duty, and I always tune into thirteen thirty. Uh, whenever I'm in humility, the humility, yeah. you know, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, real presence radio, which which just does phenomenal work getting uh, the good news out in our region. We're going to talk today about political philosophy. You and I were just chatting last week, and uh, and you had a fire burning, brother, for some philosophy. So I was like, okay, we gotta we, we gotta get this uh, get this out there. And to start our conversation about political philosophy, I'm just going to read a little bit of. Um, Pope Benedict. I've got a book in front of me called Faith and Politics, published by Ignatius Press. Got a beautiful foreword by Pope Francis, and it's a collection of writings from Pope Emeritus Benedict. What I'm going to read from here is 2011. He he is not yet uh, resigned as Pope. He's visiting his home country, Germany, and he's addressing the Bundestag, which is the German parliament, like a joint session of Congress, if you will. And and what does he choose to talk about? Here's what he says. He's um, explaining the basis for making law uh, and, and the law being founded on justice, right and wrong. Here's what he says, quote, how do we recognize what is right? In history, systems of law have almost always been based on religion. Decisions regarding what was to be lawful among men were taken with reference to divinity. Unlike other great religions, Christianity has never proposed a revealed law to the state and to society. That is to say, a juridical order derived from revelation. Instead, Christianity has pointed to nature and reason as the true sources of law. Nature and reason. What do you think? Uh, I think that Benedict's a uh, uh, genius. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what we want to talk about. I think what we were both kind of, I don't know, maybe we were doing a little bit of commiserating last week okay. of like, you know, do we, do we know how to reason anymore? No, we don't. How do we, how do we get here? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've been working in higher education, Catholic higher education for almost two decades. And in the space of faith and reason, in the dialogue between knowledge, the unity of knowledge and the subjects of knowledge and how they, they uh, relate to one another, for example, faith and business. How does, how does faith inform how we do business practices or science, right? What are the ethics of scientific practices and how does the principles of our faith impact or relate to science? And the fundamental thing that I've encountered is that whenever we have a conversation about the dialogue or, or the relationship between any body of knowledge and faith, people automatically assumed, assume that it's a revealed piece of knowledge that we're offering 
to the other body of knowledge. Yeah. What do I mean by that? What I mean is they think that I have a personal belief about that is religious in nature, spiritual, or that's given to me by the Pope or my bishop or my church. And, and I'm trying to impose it on this other person, whether it's this other body of knowledge like science or, or um, human sexuality. They think, but the failure is that what the church is proposing is not, as Benedict said, a revealed law. We're not trying to make our jurisprudence and our our social order constructed based upon uh, something that everybody can't attain or access or come to to uh, 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 believe to be true on natural orders, uh, uh, on universal principles, which are common to all human persons, no matter their religious belief. So what the church is proposing is what we would call natural law, right? And the foundation really, what Benedict says there is that most systems of law historically have always based their law on uh, principles of religion. And this is, this is true with us as well. The 10 commandments. Yeah. Right now that those were revealed, right? Right. To Moses, given to Moses on Mount Sinai. But those principles of law are not revealed law in the same sense as the doctrine of the Eucharist or Mary's assumption or these other religious beliefs. These can be those principles of law can be accessed through human reason. Right. We know that killing people is wrong. Right. We know that other people's property is not ours and therefore we can't just go take it. Yeah. We don't need God in a sense to tell us that we can access that on our own. The problem though, as Aquinas says, is that it, you know, we're not very smart. Mm. It takes us a long time to figure this thing out of our own natural reason. It's not that we can't, Right. But that it's difficult will make a lot of mistakes and, and maybe only a few of us might get there to these these real deep. Uh, but when it comes to basic principles like don't kill, don't steal, don't uh, you know covet another lady's uh, spouse or right, you know, right. another person's spouse, these things aren't difficult. Well, as a matter of fact, they're pretty common and universal to human society. Yeah. And that just to maybe give a concrete example of what you're talking about, we've, we've heard this phrase, it's kind of a crude phrase, keep your rosaries off my ovaries. Correct. When we're talking about pro-life issues, but the pro-life movement from the very, very beginning, late sixties, early seventies has always insisted they were never putting uh, their legal arguments in the terms of freedom of religion. They no. said, this is actually, this is not about religion at all. In terms 100% of about science, it's, it's about nature, who the human person is, right. what their rights are based upon their personhood. Right. That's, that's right. And so, uh, uh, you know, there is a question. I had a, a student at O'Gorman one time apply to get into Notre Dame and the reflection question they were giving is what is human personality? And I thought, oh man, this 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 gal's got her work cut out for her. Yeah, she's got to respond to what is human personality. Yes, and, and so you know, we talked a little bit about Martin Luther King and some yeah. other works like this, and and so I said, well, at the at the heart of this question upon who, human personality is is human identity. Who are we, right? Yeah, and then when does our existence begin? Because that's the point at which the the inalienableness, the rights, the that, the per- 
And so then you have to say, all right, well, biologically, when does this organism begin? And then it's like, all right, are we going to go to the Pope and have the Pope tell us? Well, yeah, he can, he might ask, but we can go to science and we can have science tell us that fundamentally a unique DNA, a unique human person exists at the moment of conception. Yeah. Right. And from that beginning, the full potentiality of the human person resides at that moment. Right. That is when the human person's origin begins and when their rights become present that can't be violated that are universal. Right. So on and so forth. But this is a scientific argument. Right. The idea that my rosaries are on your ovaries is BS. Yeah. That's not the argument we're making. And it's a logical fallacy to propose that it is. Well, the, the, the grammar, if you will, is scientific, sort of the building blocks of our reason. Those are the, the scientific facts. And, but then we, we do need to proceed from what are the facts of reality <laughs> to what is a, a moral right. argument. So right and right. wrong. So let's, let's do a little rewind here. So how do we get to the place? What I'd like to, to say, Chris, is that we live in an, an experiment that is still unknown what the result or outcome is going to be. Our country. America. Yes. Yeah, 100%. Yes. We are an experiment. And, totally. and we still are. We're like a couple hundred years old, you know, maybe 1600. You Pilgrims, Puritans, you know, and you look at a Western civilization, that kind of is at the foundation of this thing. So two groups of people come and uh, conquest the natives, right? And uh, have this American experiment that begins up in the New England territories uh, with the Puritans, right? The Puritans as the first group of people are here for religious freedom. Now their religious freedom, they want to be able to live out outside of the authority imposed to them by the Anglican church in England, right? So you have English Puritans. The next group of people are going to be enlightenment philosophers, really, Thomas Jefferson, you know, Jeffersonians. And they're going to be a a high cultured class of educated and intellectual people. They're industrious, they're influencers, they are game changers, right? These are the people that founded many of our our documents of the Constitution, Bill of Rights, so on and so forth. Thomas Jefferson is their uh, they're thinkers. Flag holder. They're thinkers. They're thinkers. Yeah. thinkers. Thinkers. Whereas the Puritans, the Pilgrims, kind of the first Pilgrims, they're religious believers, right? Mm. At first, they they wouldn't say they're first philosophers. They would say that they're first yeah. uh, followers of Jesus Christ. The Purit or the the Enlightenment thinkers, though, are not. Many of them aren't aren't Christians even at all. They're deists, and so they might believe in a cosmic order, but they're fundamentally, they're holding up Lady Liberty, which is symbolized through the gift of enlightenment through reason. Well, and if we just maybe give a real visceral illustration, we go to uh, the French Revolution and setting up, the revolutionaries set up this uh, idol to the goddess reason Mm -hmm. in Notre Dame. In, yes. in the cathedral. Yeah, on the altar, I believe, right. the imposer. Yeah, reason. Right. And so that image yeah. is the Statue of Liberty. Right. She holds a flame, a fire. That fire represents the gift of reason. Hmm. And what you see here, Chris, the Catholic proposal is faith and reason. 
that there are two particular bodies of truths. There are spiritual realities and there are natural realities. We access the spiritual realities through the gift of faith. We need God's assistance and divine revelation to help us come to fully understand them. But the natural bodies of, of, of reality, we can use our reason. And so this is ultimately the, what we call philosophy. Yeah. Natural philosophy begins primarily in the West with Plato and Socrates, Plato and Aristotle are the three great figureheads, right? And so they begin to train us in this love of wisdom, the seeking of knowledge and truth, this understanding of reality. And then by our understanding it, Chris, we then in turn use it to organize the polis, the city, the civitas, the human community based upon our understanding of human nature. Yeah. So we have to discover what a thing is, and then we get to understand how it is that it fits, what's its purpose, how it, what, what its good is, how, how it's going to help benefit the whole, these types of conversations. This is philosophy, and there are three realms to philosophy. There is natural philosophy, there is moral philosophy, and there is metaphysical philosophy. Natural philosophy is the study of nature, of what things are. Yeah. Human person, a bicycle, you know, a brick, yeah. uh, earth tree. Moral philosophy is ethics and behavior, right and wrong, right? What, a, what is good for a thing to do? Human action and behavior, justice, virtue. All of these things that I hear you talk about as you talk about soul to state, yeah. right? Principles and virtues, right? That is fundamentally moral philosophy. And then metaphysical philosophy is like the study of God, mm -hmm. the study of divine reality, spiritual realities beyond nature, the spiritual, the immaterial realities. What happens is Thomas Jefferson kind of takes the, the realm of philosophy and anything that is not empirical the Enlightenment philosophers want to set on the side. And eventually what happens is anything that is not within the empirical realm of science is said to be or come to be understood as personalized, privatized. Three things ultimately happen. Faith in religion because of the Enlightenment, because of Thomas Jefferson beating the crap out of the Pilgrim and the Puritan, right? Religion becomes privatized and interiorized. It's no longer uh, an agency that is exercised in the public sphere, yeah. in the public square. It becomes separated from daily life, number two. Mm. Separated from daily life. And the third is that it's focused on personal belief. Well, this is, this, is, this is the world we live in right now. Keep your rosaries off your, my ovaries, right? Yeah. That's your thing over there. That's your personal belief, right? Um, you know, the Catholics and, and communion and all these different things, the ultimate, well, Catholics shouldn't, you know, impose abortion on uh, the rest of society, right? No, we have to keep that separated, that's your religious thing over there. That's what you guys believe. You can't impose that on others. Well, listen, Plato and Socrates, Aristotle, they're rolling in their grave. They're like, are you guys all idiots or what? This is moral philosophy. This is about creating human flourishing, about organizing societies and social communities for the good, for the true, for the noble. We run around bitching and complaining about justice, which we ought to. We ought to, Chris, but we can't take justice 
simply in a human form. We must understand that justice is primarily and fundamentally a relationship virtue by which we give God and others their due, what they ought. But we want to remove God. We want to remove religion. We want to remove the spirit from the whole conversation of public life and then somehow assume or think that we're going to get to justice. Yeah. So we have a human enterprise, a bunch of people. And I don't know about you, Chris, but every time I try solving a problem, I it typically I create two more. Right. And sometimes I feel like that's what we're up to. Mm. But when I sit back and say, Lord, I want your will. Lord, let the let the spirit be present to help us accomplish the good. You know, it just seems to work out better. And Chris, we would propose that that's the spiritual principle of the human person at work. So, so I mean, how do we, how do we do this? Because I think it's, it's one thing to make uh, rational arguments on matters of, you know, public importance. We, our country, I think is, we still haven't fully grappled with what will be the aftershocks of uh, the marriage debates in our country, you know, Obergefell right. versus Hodges. Right. And, you know, it's, it's a very common, you know, the, the, the forces that were sort of advancing same sex marriage, you know, they had great messaging, if you will, they're just really captured the rhetoric, right. which um, rhetoric is, it can be dangerous if it's not founded on a solid logic reason. Right. Right. Love is love. Well, okay, well, let's start with what is love. Right. So we just, I just literally did that lesson on Tuesday in class. But it tells how does, right, how do so, you do that? Um, at the foundation of human linguistics is, is an understanding of terms. You must understand what the word is or means. And then the other person must agree. You must have a common place by which you have an understanding of what things are, what you, and this is philosophy. This is the beginning of philosophy. But what we have, Chris, is we no longer actually have an objective universal set belief on terms, what things actually are. Yeah. And so when we talk about love, it's called sophistry. We yeah. have a modern culture of sophistry. There's also a Linda Zygzebski, a, a, a philosopher down, uh, I think she's down in Texas. Uh, she calls it, she has an article called Bullshit. There's actually an article in the New York Times, maybe, saying, talking about how bullshitters are more likely to be, be bullshitted. So it's this idea that says that there's a false truth, there's a lack of, of good, there's, there's something that's just surface level. It, 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 it has, um, it sounds good, but it's hollow inside. Um, you know, no substance on the inside, but flashy on the outside. It, 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 vulgar at its heart, but uh, shiny in the exterior. So uh, point being here, when we take a look at how we dialogue and converse with one another, we no longer have the same language, but we're working on different um, expectations or platforms. We believe that there is an objective. I would say this, people that are working from a natural law perspective, from a Christian intellectual tradition, yeah. are looking at something they believe is universal eternal and it applies all time to all people the enlightenment philosophy is not necessarily that it's been subjectivized and relativized where you can make it whatever you want it to be so i used an example in class i just said love is love yeah all right 
let's here it is here's here's and and so uh, uh sophistry or bullshit is popularly put into slogans sure love is love yeah. what does this mean and so you know we have the kids and ultimately they're all um they're universally able to get to what that scene is trying to say is that anybody ought to be and be able to be in a relationship with one another that is sexual right because this isn't so so as long as it's consensual as long as it's consensual right, right. so right. so two people doesn't matter man woman 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 man man transgender whatever they, if two adult consenting people love each other they ought to be able to do whatever they want right well that's the privatization of religious practice and moral behavior. That's the separation of daily life. Like somehow religion and morality doesn't play out in this conversation. So love is love. All right. So then now what do you guys mean by love? Well, ultimately what we get to is a conversation around feelings and around sexual behaviors is what it boils down to the two. But when we talk about it, we have one term in English for love. And we just use it for whatever some, I love pizza and I love my wife. Right. Well, they're two very different things. And Augustine would say that life is about the ordering of love, right? Prioritization of our loves. Well, what do you mean? Oh, well, so I love pizza, but I don't love pizza in the same way I love my wife. Right. Yeah. And so this idea of being able to order in a hierarchy of love is where you take, is where I bring them back to the Greek understanding though, of where the term love comes from and and that in its origin in english we have one word that we use for a multitude of different ways of expressing this thing we call love but you can have brotherly love which is not eros which is not sexual and when couples are going to get married that may be living together the priests invite them to live in the same house as brother and sister that's a form of love. That is what we call philos. Yeah. And C.S. Lewis unpacks these different sort of levels or forms yes. of love in The Four Loves, which is a great book. If you've never read it, it right. really helps us understand what is maybe a, a linguistic deficiency for yes, us. 100%. Um, but so, Joe, we've got, we've got five or six minutes left. And one of the questions that I do want to try and draw out of you in our time here is for people that are listening in that either – maybe aren't quite sure how to do this, like how to reason. Maybe it's a lack of confidence or well, it's a lack, maybe, of training. lack of training. Yeah, you know, Socrates would be ashamed of, of. Where do we start? We what, what advice? Where do we start yeah. education well, with the family? Okay. So I'm, you know, I'm Joe Schmo and I'm, I'm working a job and I've got a family and I'm not going back to school. What can I do, you know, in my life that, that, because we, it can be kind of glib or cliche to say, you know, I'm a, um, education is a lifelong endeavor or, you know, I, I, I believe in ongoing education. Well, okay. What does that mean? Practically speaking, does that mean if I really want to like form myself and reason more completely, do I need to go back and get a master's degree? Do I just need to listen to faith and politics every week? Yeah. Right. <laughs> just listen to Chris Moss. Uh, yeah. Shameless you know, plug. This what, is, what do I, I do? Think, you know, this is, I would say number one, uh, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. A wise woman once told me that Joe just, just put Jesus in the middle of it all. If you're uncertain about anything. Yeah. And so it's like, you don't, you don't detach yourself from 
the person of Jesus Christ. He actually comes, Chris, and he says, uh, John, the, the St. John says in the gospel that the word became flesh. Well, in the original language, this is reason. We are saying the logos, the, the ordering principle of all reality is what the Greeks believed in, that the world was ordered by a cosmic reality, power, spirit, God, right? This is what Socrates is going to be killed for. Um, and so when, when John says that the word became flesh, he's saying that divine reason itself, the ordering principle itself, the, the, the I am of I ams, right? The, the, the burning bush just became flesh in Jesus. So lean into Jesus and your Catholic faith, and it should never contradict yeah. the natural order of things. I'm, yeah, I got to read this. This is, again, from Benedict in the Bundestag Address, because what you're talking about here is we're not just about reason unto itself. Like it's no, the goddess, no. this idol in Notre Dame. Right. Here's what Benedict says in its self-proclaimed exclusivity. He's talking about this idea of reason alone mm -hmm. in its self-proclaimed exclusivity, the positivist reason, which recognizes nothing beyond mere functionality. It resembles a concrete bunker with no windows in which we ourselves provide lighting and atmospheric conditions, the air we're breathing, right. being no longer willing to obtain, obtain either from God's wide world. And yet, he goes on, we cannot hide from ourselves the fact that even in this artificial world, we are still covertly drawing upon God's raw materials, yeah. which we refashion into our own products. Here's what he says we must do. The windows must be flung open again we must see the wide world, the sky and the earth once more and learn to make proper use of all this. So we can't just sort of be like we're in this little concrete bunker, no, 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 an no, island no. unto ourselves. No. Open the windows. Open the windows. Drink deeply of God's fresh Absolutely. air. Absolutely. And what I would propose, Chris, is that what the farmer, what the main street leader, what the, the person that's, you know, sitting at their home right now can do is they can begin to understand deeper what it leisure is mm. we need a we need a culture of contemplation reflection leisure we need to slow down we need to meditate more deeply upon what things are about what brings us happiness and fullness and fulfillment and not simply look at the world technocratically like it's it's just a, a bunch of boxes that we got to check in order to arrive at this material end where somehow we're rich fat wealthy and we can retire and be happy Okay. That is not what this is about. It's about creating human flourishing. And in order to understand what human flourishing looks like, we need to again reinvent. We need to look back at what we do when we vacation. We need to learn leisure. Or even the Sabbath. Vacation. Sabbath, Sabbath. I mean, 100%. so we've got about a minute here left. I'm going to give everybody a homework assignment. This is like one of the top five most influential books in my life. Leisure, leisure the Basis of Culture. It's a short book. Uh, it's not very long at all. Joseph Pieper, go check it out. Joe, what's the 32nd version of leisure to the basis of culture? Cause that's what we're going to talk about next time you come on the show. Um, that to live a fully human life requires contemplation. And by that, I mean, uh, the, the slowing down and the receiving of beauty and goodness in the world, not in a way that we're doing work, but we're receiving God's presence. And that's what we were made for. We were made for God. Amen. Joe, thanks for joining me on the program. 
I was all over the place. Next time I'll be more organized. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Great to be, great to be with you. Hey, and thank you, dear listener, as always for tuning in. Love listener feedback. So you can go to our website, sdcatholicconference.org. Click contact us. Send me a note. Tell me what you want to hear about. Tell me what, uh, let's, let's hear the cheers and the jeers. Let me know uh, what you didn't like too. Um, Until next time, live well. Live well.